All right, hope everybody's doing good. We're back with another edition of KC Music Talk. Today I have a pianist, organist, and band leader here in town, Ken Laverne. How you doing? Good to see you, Robert. Yep, thanks for coming, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think the you you and I haven't talked a ton, but I've seen you play at, at Green Lady a couple times, and yeah, your band's really good, man. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we have a good time. Mm -hmm. We have a good time playing music, so. Yeah, I, I've, uh, I'm always blown away at a lot of a lot of your guys' bands. I mean, Chris, you know, Hazelton's band would be in the same category. You guys always find really good other musicians to play with. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, uh, I think, you know, as a band leader or a band member, you know, uh, the quality of the people you play with is, is huge. And, you know, and find people that you have similar aesthetics, you're able to get along with them mm. and have fun, you know, and have mm. fun. And that's... Uh, and I'm always trying to play with the best people, you yeah. know, I can. Sure. And I feel blessed that, you know, the people I get to play with, I, I feel lucky every time I uh, do a gig. I was like, these musicians are great. And mm -hmm. so I'm always very happy to get to play with uh, the musicians I get to play with here in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. We have a crap load of them. There's a lot of good play, especially in the kind of the jazz scene. I mean, there's a hundred guys out there, you know, in right. various instruments that are just killer. Right. That's, it cracks me up every time I go down to Green Lady or, you know, Blue Room or where, you know, it's just cracking me up how many people are here in town. Um, so I'd, I have definitely a bunch of questions about your band, but uh, tell, tell everybody that don't know you a little bit how you got started playing or whatever. Well, um, I took piano lessons as a kid, you know, and I, I started playing in bands pretty young. I did have a, my, my first piano teacher was actually a very good teacher, Elsie Ellis. She had been a public school teacher. Mm -hmm. But I found one of my old notebooks uh, from like when I was uh, nine years old or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she had me playing major scales around the key circle. Mm. You know, she had me doing some things that I'd later do with John Elliott uh, when I took lessons from him. And so I wish I'd focused on those lessons more, you know, because I was busy playing football or building tree houses or whatever I did as a nine year old boy. But I had a, a good foundation from her. Um, and then didn't take lessons uh, when we moved back to Kansas City. That had been in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Um, but I started playing in bands at a young age in junior high, like mm. in eighth grade. Yeah, wow. And so in some ways I was kind of self-taught at that point because I just learned stuff off of records or we'd get sheet music or somebody go to a guitar lesson and his teacher would show him the chords, you know, and then I'd learn them from that. Um, but I started playing in bands at a young age uh, and then played in the jazz band at Shawnee Mission West. Mm -hmm. um, I went to the South myself. And then uh, got in with uh, John Elliott, who's a great uh, jazz piano teacher and theory teacher here in Kansas City, and started taking with him. I was like a senior in high school. And then I went to uh, Jensen County Community College, played in the jazz band out there. Um, got a, got a, a music scholarship to go out there. Um, so from a pretty young age, I was interested in playing in bands. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, was able to do so, and I was I was playing gigs. I was 18, 19, I was playing jazz gigs, you know, and I was so green, mm. you know, I was so green. Mm. At, at the Old City Light, which was at 75th and Warnell, um, and like City Light Orchestra was there, uh, Horace Washington was there, with Tyrone Clark on bass, Scooter Pell on drums, and uh, Alan Monroe. Yeah, they played. Alan, yeah. They played there. I think one or two nights a week, or, or however we do it back then. It might have been we'd play like a three or four night <laughs> run. But I was young and playing those gigs, you know. Mm -hmm. So 
it, 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 and then back then I played in rock bands, and jam bands, all kind of bands in, in, in my college years and even beyond. But from a pretty young age, there were jazz gigs available in Kansas City that I was doing. Um, so that, that got me, in, and, and it seemed like the jazz gigs often uh, paid better than a lot of the other gigs I do. You know, the rock gigs, sometimes they'd pay great. If it was a door gig, we'd make a bunch of money. Or other times, you wouldn't make hardly anything. Mm -hmm. The jazz gigs were more consistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I learned that from a young age. If I wanted to make a living playing music, you know, the jazz gigs tend to support that Mm -hmm. uh, more than some of the other gigs I was doing. Yeah, that's cool, man. I think it's interesting when you're talking about that you got some training, but you also had this huge time where you were sort of kind of on your own, it sounded like, like learning-wise. And, I mean that probably affected you quite a bit because a lot of times in classical, we never get the on our own part and it's all just structure, 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 you know, and like, and then some other guys get the opposite where it's always been on their own and they've never had any real training on theory and that kind of right, stuff. I mean, right. did, do you think that that's a good, a good framework for people to get a little bit of, a little bit of help, but then kind of sort of force them on their own a little bit? Do you think that could be helpful? Wait. In the end, you have to turn the final trick yourself, right? I mean, no yeah. matter who your teachers are, what are you studying, you, you know, it, it becomes the student's responsibility to learn. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think the more help you can get, the better, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish I'd been more serious about lessons when I was younger mm-hmm. and more serious about practicing when I was younger. Um, but everybody's got their own journey. But there does seem to be, you know, like you mentioned the classical thing. Uh, and, and Western art music, where you know every note's written, you know, and there's the interpretation of it. But then you get more, you know, the American approach, the jazz approach, is, is very improvisation based. And there's certainly a lot of music, Indian yeah. music, and lots of music that are very improvisation based. Uh, but in my experience, it came more from the jazz end or thing or jam bands, mm-hmm. and you know, where very little is written, if anything, is written. Um, I have worked with adult students who came up playing, you know, every written notes, every note was written, and then some of these people are retired. And even they can learn, you know, to play with, you know, and improvise. And so I think it's a very learnable uh, skill. You just have to, you know, at some point do it. Um, So I guess the, the, the answer is, Get with as many teachers, you know, get, I, I recommend getting with as many, the best teachers you can and, and try several different teachers, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but then, yeah, in the end, it's all about practice. Right. You yeah, know, the, and, same, the same teacher your whole life is probably actually not a good idea, huh? You know, you want to hear... They'd have to be exactly the right teacher for that to be a good idea, right? You, yeah, know, you have yeah. to get lucky, find a good one mm-hmm. at first. Um, but I think, you know... Everybody's got to find their own voice in the end. Mm. You know, I mean, that's, I think, ideally, as a musician, you find your own voice. Yeah, sure. Um, with So so moving to kind of Oregon, uh, Oregon always cracks me up. Like, I'm a big uh, uh, Medesky Martin and Wood fan, so I'm, you know, watching uh, watching him. And so, so first of all, because I know there's a couple of different kinds of organs, like, and, and somebody, I think we're at the... the the Kansas City Community College camp and Everett was up there, you know, and they they had the thing open and it was like this spinning 
air thing. Like I was just like blown away because I'd never seen one open before. Like, can you can you explain like how the organ sort of works or like what's going on there? So uh, it sounds like what you were talking about was the Leslie speaker, mm-hmm. which which spins and you know rock bands tend to turn those to where you can see the spinning, which is actually the back of the cabinet is where you can oh, okay, generally yeah. see it. And the backs are actually usually removed, uh, which allows a little more high end to come out of the back end of the cabinet and mm. people will mic that. And so you can see the top horn is spinning and it looks like two horns, you know. Right, right. Only one of them is producing sound. The other one's there for a counterweight, which I didn't learn that until I've been playing organ yeah, for 10 years or something. <laughs> and, and that was when Don Leslie, who invented the Leslie speaker, uh, so the Hammond organ came out in the mid thirties and it was supposed to reproduce the sound of a church organ right. roughly, you know, mm-hmm. an electric version of the church organ. And one of the initial knocks on it was it was just too pure. You know, the sine waves were just too pure and a, a, a real church organ, you know, some of the notes would be slightly out of tune or you also had the pipes spread all out throughout right. the church. And, um, so Don Leslie's idea was to spin the speaker in order to sp- spread the sound out. Mm-hmm. And he started off with like a bunch of speakers, like about 12, eight speakers mm-hmm. that were spinning. And he tested it and started disconnecting them until he got down to one. Mm-hmm. And that was what he thought was best. So the high end is actually one horn, you know, uh, driver dr- putting sound through one hole. There's then also a, a bass speaker, which is usually a 15, pointed down, uh, kind of like a folded horn cabinet. And then there's a scoop that, that spins down there, like a big scoop, like that, that, that they call the drum, uh, which okay. spins. So that creates the low end. And so what you've got is both amplitude modulation, uh, meaning volume, and uh, pitch modulation mm-hmm. using the Doppler effect. Like when a train comes at you, you hear the pitch go up, and as it, as the train's coming towards you, and then go down as the as it as it mm. leads you right. That's the Doppler effect, as the pitch varies depending on what the, the source of the sound moving. So that's what's happening when the Leslie's spinning. The Doppler effect is creating a slight pitch modulation. Oh, weird! And so uh, that's what's going on with the Leslie speaker. Oh, crazy! Um, and those are the spinning things. It's also Mostly they're tube amps. There are solid state Leslie's, but most of the, the classic ones are tube amps. And so there's that nice warm tube, you know, like John Modesky always has the thing. Right. There's all, usually his sound has a fair amount of distortion in it. Right. And part of that is just the Leslie's turned up all the way or oh, nearly okay. all the way. Um, so that's the, the Leslie speaker. The Hammond organ itself uh, uses spinning metal wheels to generate sound called tone wheels. And the history of that is that Lawrence Hammond had a patent for a clock, the synchronous motor of a clock. So in the you know, early part of the 20th century, clocks would, you know, people were winding clocks and, and they'd gotten good, but they would still have problems with, you had to wind it, oh, I forgot to wind it, now what time is it? And so he invented this electric clock that would sync to the cycles of the alternating current, which in Chicago at the time was actually 50 cycles instead of 60 cycles. but it syncs to that, it's called a synchronous motor because it syncs to the cycles of the alternating current going back and forth between positive and negative. So that's the motor that runs a a Hammond organ. 
actually tunes to the 60 cycles in uh, the alternating current. So if you hook one up to a generator, they'll, the pitch will move because generators don't hit 60 cycles consistently. Oh, that's weird. So a lot, a lot of information here, but yeah. so there's all these spinning, uh, spinning wheels, 90 of them in the tone generator by Hammond organ, and there's little notches on the wheels, and then the notches go by an electromagnetic pickup. And the number of notches in the wheel and the frequency at which they go by the electromagnetic pickup determines the pitch that's generated by oh, that tone weird. wheel. So these, there's like 90 tone wheels that are generating these pitches all the time. And then when you play, play the keys, it, it takes the sound from those pitches and passes them through. Wow. So it's called an electromechanical instrument in that Ooh. it's electric, but it's also mechanical. And yeah. there's all these moving wheels. There's also a, a tube preamp in the classic uh, preamp model. Uh, of a Hammond organ. So it's got a tube preamp and a tube amp. And so by adjusting that tube preamp, you can also get more or less distortion. Oh, crazy. And, and adjust the tone. It, okay, and then so so with somebody like Medeski, where you have all these, uh, what are the things that you're pulling in and out? Draw bars. Draw bars. So he's, I mean, I was watching a solo and he's just, and then, I mean, the whole time he's just pulling in and out and it like, what in general like what is all that crap like what is he doing with those that conversation would better be had you know at the console of the organ right because you can demonstrate what's happening but in terms of just describing it that it's a harmonic series there's an eight foot draw bar which is basically middle c is the fundamental mm -hmm. there's one an octave below it there's one a fifth above it um so you can play a major scale by playing the same four notes mm -hmm. you know. And then you play the same four notes again and move the draw bar and get that. Oh, crazy. You know, use the fifth. Oh, okay. You know, okay. yeah. That's interesting because when he's doing all that, it sounds it sounds more like tone than pitch. You know what I mean? When, he, when he's pulling those out, it sounds uh, like you can go, not a church or, you know, but the the church to a jazz organ or I mean or making it more open or closed sound right well essentially it's the harmonic I mean you've got thirds and fifths and octaves uh -huh. are basically what's available and so the more draw bars you pull out the brighter the tone gets right you get higher harmonics and so that makes the tone brighter but you're actually also can shift the notes and I, and okay, I, yeah. I did an organ rental uh, the Jayhawk Music Festival in 1997 98 uh -huh. And, and ran an organ in Badesky yeah. and got to talk to him a little bit. And he was actually showing me that trick of doing that. Yeah. Except you want to play the same four notes and just yeah, shift the draw bars. That's weird. And yeah. so he spent a lot of time. When he's moving those draw bars, he knows how the sound's going to change. Sure. You know, like an electronic solfege, I guess. Yeah. You know, he knows what sound's changing because he's. And I was like, well, that's quite a discipline. He goes, oh, it's just a kid's game. He goes, I'm just playing with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he's got that great artist, you know, mentality of. Yeah. It's just all play. Yeah, sure. You know, um, but after a while, I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna kind of, because I mean, there's, I mean, there's like sixty of them there, or four, well, thirty of them, or something. There's the four one sets of nine. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. There's yeah, four so. sets of nine, and so, uh, so you'd get to memorize. I mean, you after, I mean, playing playing mm -hmm. on it for four years, you'd memorize all the, you know. Yeah, and depending on how you use it and how much you adjust those things, it becomes very intuitive. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's percussion controls and other controls you can use to change some vibrato on or off. Um, but that, it, you know, it's a very expressive instrument. You can go from a whisper to a scream to get it to gush. Mm -hmm, right. You know, yeah. and, uh, and, and you're right. 
while you're changing the harmonic and in some ways the pitch, it does in a lot of ways just come off as a difference in tone. It's either yeah. darker or brighter. Right. And the more, you know, there's that thing of saying, pull out all the stops. Mm. That's nine draw bars all the way out, yeah, volume funny. pedal all the way down. Yeah. Wow. I, yeah. I never, I never thought about that, that uh, phrase being on organ. That's funny. So like with organ, the one thing that I always, it always cracks me up about a lot of instruments like for example when I listen to like a mandolin it it plays and then there's no sustain there uh -huh. you know and then you go listen to an electric guitar and it's just wow and it's just going going uh Hendrix or something you know would do something like that Jimi Hendrix but and then for us on violin you you know you can just sit there and and if you can keep the you know the strength in there you you can keep going and then a horn you know they'll they'll you know you just gotta keep that sustained but on organ it always cracks me up because you can kind of because you guys always have that uh that trick of you know you're going through your solo and you got maybe three rounds or two rounds eventually and you go 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 and then finally you hit the, you know hold that huge sustain and you're doing other stuff with it but there's this just huge presence there and it just always cracks me up the differences there of how how sustain works on because piano is not going to do that piano is eventually going to decay pretty quickly you know yeah I, that that just cracks me up and you guys get pretty good on uh, when to you know when to hold out that sustain musically and to know if I do that at the beginning of my solo you know it may not it may not work that good but you go 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 and then the epicness boom and you hit this. I don't know, that always cracked me up. I don't know if you're fascinated by that, but like... Well, so... I came up playing more piano yeah. as a kid. And I had played, I mean, I, one of my first electronic keyboards was a Yamaha Lectone organ. So I had organs at a young age playing in bands. Mm -hmm. But, you know, was still, you know, more of a pianist. Uh, so when, when, I, when I really started playing organ more, uh, which was about 1997. I was, you know, you know, almost 30 when I bought a Hammond organ. Um, you're exactly right. That's one of the main differences is the sustain, the infinite sustain. And when I was at UMKC, uh, I was there, and they didn't really have a jazz studies program. So I played in jazz band, played in combo, but those didn't count as performing ensembles at the time. So I had to sing in choir, right? Which bothered me because there's a sort of this anti-jazz bias. Yeah, sure. But I have to say, singing in choir was so good for me. Mm. And not that I became a great singer, but I learned so much because mm. it's something I'd never done before. And one of the things in, in choir is, and, and you know this is violence, or horn players certainly are very aware of this, is where's your note ending? Yeah. Where's the end of you can rush a whole note, yeah, right? right? You can rush the whole note by definitely rush a whole note. Right, by rushing the end of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so organs like that, you gotta be super aware of the end of the notes. Make yeah. sure the end of the notes clean. And yeah. it's much more important than as a pianist. And when I teach organ lessons to pianists who are uh, learning how to play organ, and I, I've had some of those lately, that's always a big thing. Mm -hmm. Is is Listen to the end of your notes. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one of the things about the infinite sustain of the organ is you have to be aware of the end of the notes and how that's happening musically and think maybe more like a horn player sure. uh, than a pianist necessarily would. Um, but yeah, it does give you a lot of power in terms of you can sustain those notes forever and build a lot of energy. 
Um, but yeah, you have to be uh, somewhat judicious about sure. the use of that. Like you were saying, you know, save that, save that for some, right. or, you know, use it in ways that you're not overusing it. Mm. But yeah, that's, maybe not every solo, right? You're because it's one of your tools or one of your tricks, right? You know? Right, right. So with like for improv, for example, is there anything that you're? Because my problem is I'm I think too much. You know, so I'm always thinking out my solo and I, and, and that kind of gets me in trouble sometimes because there's some moments where I cannot enjoy it. You know, I'm thinking it out and going, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, sec start a second round. Okay, I'm going to go up and I'm just like, duh, duh, you know, like you talking about trying to stay three chess moves ahead in the song, you know. What, is there anything that you're thinking about while you're improving, or are you just kind of going or... Is, you know, as little as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I want as little thought as possible. And uh, I've certainly, you know, have had too much of this. Yeah. Too much, you know, too much, whether it's critical or whatever voice, mm -hmm. you know, too much self-talk. Sure. And I think for me, that's anti-musical. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm hearing too much talk, I'm not listening to what my other music, what the other members of the band are doing. I'm not uh, maybe listening to myself mm -hmm. as well as having... And so for me, you know, I want to practice. I want to know what's going on, know the changes, know the song. You know, I, I tend to not read charts at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can read music and I, I certainly if I do somebody else's gig, I'll read their charts. But on my bands, I, I memorize everything, yeah. partly because my eyes are going, mm -hmm. but also because it helps me just be present yeah. for the music, to be yeah. present for what's happening in the moment. And so um, I try to think as little as possible um, that said, a lot of the things you're talking about are, are sure I'll try and start smaller, start with a, right. an idea that I state, you know, slowly, I'll state it in quarter notes or half notes mm -hmm. and then, okay, I'll double that idea up. Right. Okay. And now I'm going to move it around that, you know, so I, I do conceive of things like that, mm -hmm. but, but I think the less I'm actually thinking about words or words in my head, the better. Yeah. Um, you know, my best experiences playing music are when I'm not the one doing it. It's mm. just passing through me. Yeah, yeah. And and that's always what I that's where I want to be. I want to be in that place where music is just is just flowing through me and I'm almost not even the one doing it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's the that and, and so I'm always that's where I want to be. You know, I'm always how often do I get there? On a good night, maybe twenty percent. Right. You know? Right. On a great night, maybe twenty five percent. Yeah, that's you, the ideal. Yeah, on, yeah. on a bad night, you know, maybe hardly at all. I think Keith Jarrett kind of talks a little bit about that because everybody talks about him going into this like trance thing, you know, where, where he's not doing the self-talking. And I mean, you know, because I'm not really meaning that I'm saying a lot of words, you know, because it's way too fast, right? I mean, you're going through the song. You can't be saying words. So I guess that's not exactly what I mean. But I could probably do a little bit better at that. I would say just self-critical myself of thinking too much and saying stuff and not just kind of letting it flow. And it's hard, though, like you said, you can't. it's hard to get that 100% of the time, huh? Right, right. Yeah. And I think, you know... The more that I can find that space, the closer I am to it all the time. There's also that thing of I'll have that place where I'm not the one doing it. Everything's going great. It's amazing. I feel like I'm in this great place. I'm, and then what song are we playing? <laughs> you know, I'll get to where I'm so detached that yeah. I've got to bring myself back. I've got to get more conscious mind. And so, but I do think, you know, 
that that state of as an improvising musician, and I think it's true for you know interpreting musicians too, or interpreting you know written music they know. You want to be consciously aware and consciously present. You want sure. to be present, but not in your head. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's it, there's that book, The Inner Game of Tennis. Mm -hmm. that a lot yeah, of people I've, I've read. read and and that's that. a that's a really good description of it. And he talks about how you know, hey, if you're playing tennis and you have to think, oh, it's the shots to my left, I got to go over here. It's to backhand, you know. You're it's not, gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gone. And so you have to train all those things. The muscle memory, yeah. Yeah, train all those things so you're not consciously thinking about them, but you are present. Mm -hmm. um, I find sometimes if I'll just focus on something, like focus on the ride symbol, you know, I'll just st listen to the ride symbol, listen to the hi-hat. Sometimes if I do those things or listen to the uh, release of my bass notes, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm often thinking about how's the bass feel, what's the, what's, where's the release of the bass notes. If I focus on an element of the playing, it tends to put me present in the music, um, you know, and and maybe eliminate any kind of negative self-talk or anything. I right. So that, that I think that's a, a good thing uh, for musicians who are improvisers to help get themselves present. Mm -hmm. You know, I always think it's interesting to ask people about this because uh, I think some people consciously work on it. Other people, it's almost unconscious. You know, they're not really even conscious of that process. And, mm -hmm. and for some of them, it's working great. And for some of them, you know, some better than others. Yeah. But not everybody consciously works on that, I've learned. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you, you definitely, I agree. You've got to, that, that's how I kind of look at it is now, you know, the technique of the stuff, you know, from 30 whatever years of playing, I'm not thinking about my notes, right? I mean, and my grip and all you know, that stuff's just like that's breathing now you know and so mm -hmm. I feel like what I could do is think about all the stuff I just mentioned you know and so but uh, but yeah I could kind of work on that a little bit of trying to just listen more and just kind of do it because tech uh, muscle memory and technique wise I can I don't have mm -hmm. to because this is what you see at jams all the time is that you know the guitar player and he's sitting here and he's you know, he's just staring at his chords all the day. Well, that's because he's he's finding it. <laughs> you know, it's like he doesn't know where his G, you know G sharp nine is. So he's like, oh wait, hold on. You know, and it, it's just going too fast to be like that, right? You got to get, you got to know where all your notes are and the the facility and all that. But um, with your uh, what was it gonna? Oh yeah, um, t talk to me a little bit about the left hand bass kind of stuff because I know there's a lot of keyboardists that aren't very good at that I know Chris is pretty good at that uh, Mark Lowry's pretty getting pretty good at that because um, a lot of guys are playing up um, they're playing they're playing up on the keyboard for good reason because if they go too far down they're they're you know just battling with this bass player the whole time and did that take you a while to get the you know walking bass on your left hand or is it, is that hard or is it like talk about that well i w was playing organ uh i you know a little bit i was living in lawrence at the time in a band with john lomas and a drummer rick bruner and we had a a bass player who was we'd done you know a couple of gigs i think and then the bass player couldn't make a rehearsal mm -hmm. and so we did a rehearsal without him and John Lomans, the guitar player, goes, we're a trio now. Yes. You know? Damn. And so that's how I started playing organ bass. And I mean... Just chopped him. And, and <laughs> I had... And he, the bass player was working. He was mm -hmm. too busy. To, mm -hmm. So that, it, it didn't bother him. But 
it was uh, I had I had started messing around with organ bass as soon as I got an organ. I knew it was kind of a thing, but I wasn't that aware of it. And so I was immediately thrown into and that band was called B Groove. Um, I was immediately thrown into playing bass, and what the couple things about it. One was I it, I found it immediately made, made me present in the music because I had to be very present to where's the quarter note. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a pianist, a lot of times I you've given that over to the bass player and the drummer, you know, and you're kind of riding on top of it. And you can do some things to influence time. You can certainly lock into the time, but you're not primarily responsible for stating the time like a bass player. Yeah, is. Yeah. And so, and I found that made me very present, you know, which is always what I, I want to be. I want to be right. present in the music. And, and so it put me right in the moment. And so that it just immediately attracted me. I became yeah. very uh, enamored with playing. So it was more of a rhythmic thing than, than a chordal thing necessarily, it well, sounds well, like. Well, yeah, and, there, and, and for me, I had played a fair amount, well, some solo piano gigs, and I had studied bass lines uh, with John Elliott and then on my own. Um, you know, I was aware of keyboard players playing bass, but I hadn't done a lot of it until I started playing organ. And um, other than just like solo piano gigs or maybe working with a singer in a duo. Um, and so I had the harmonic awareness of bass lines and I could hear what bass players would play harmonically, but mm. um, certainly the rhythmic aspect of it was all new to me. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it's the feel, you know, just being in the center of the time or you rushing or you dragging yeah. or how's that feel? And then, yeah, the release of the notes to me yeah, is a big yeah. deal. Um, now, organ is very different from other keyboards in that you've also got the pedals. Oh, right. And so, to art, you know, an organ jazz is its own thing. And to articulate the bass lines in the best possible way in organ, you use the bass pedals and the left hand mm. together. Yeah. And, and I've worked a lot on getting the pedals so I can double all the bass lines. <laughs> right. You're sitting here like this right. the whole you know, gig. Yeah, I, can, that's, that's you can, I can double most of everything I play. If it gets real up-tempo, I might start just playing on two and four. Mm. Or you can just tap one pedal to get the attack. And, mm. and really, the, the bass pedals have a di- little bit different tone than the, the lower manual of the organ. I, I believe there's like almost more of a sawtooth wave where the organ's basically sine waves. The Hammond organ's basically, you know, it's all sine waves. Mm. The bass pedal has a, more of a sawtooth wave tone. Some of the pedal, the tones that feed that are a little different. So you get a little bit punchier, low end, uh, louder as, as I perceive it. What the organ jazz thing is, is you just tap the pedal briefly and then sustain it in your left hand. And that gives you the attack, mm. like the plectrum effect of pick, plicking, uh, picking a string or plucking yeah. a string. And so that's the organ thing. And you can get it by just tapping one pedal and playing the bass line on your left hand, but you gotta be quick. You gotta get, it's just gotta be a very quick tap. But to really articulate the best, articulate the best bass lines, the best way, you're doubling it and then you can sustain the notes longer. Like I tend to sustain two and four longer on a swing tune mm. to give that, that a little more drive. Um, mm. But there's different ways to, to articulate the bass lines. Yeah, and, sure. And that's been, I was probably playing organ for, two or three years before I even really reoriented and realized that being a bass player was now my most important job. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, an organ player... You, uh, oh, no, yeah, you're just a trio, so you're not going to usually have a guitar, right? Yeah, it's usually guitar, organ, and, and drums. Oh, okay, yeah, so you have an extra person doing chords there, That's too. That's right. Right, yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. So you're... And, and a jazz organist without a bass player, their primary job really, I think, is to be the bass player. Mm. If that's not happening, good luck with anything yeah. else, right? It's, that's got to be right. 
And so that, it took me several years to even kind of reorient because I, you know, I'd been a professional musician for quite a while, at least 10 years before I switched, started playing organ. So it was a slow process to like reorient to that's now, that's my primary job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot on the show. We don't have to get into it now, but but the kind of role of each person in the band is really interesting. And I've said this before that I always thought kind of the drums were the center, but I heard Dave Holland talk on this this Bitches Brew video. He's like, no, he's like bass is the center, you know, the drum. And then Jack, De they went over Jack DeJanet and he's like, yeah, I'm not the center. <laughs> you know, it was it was funny to hear them talk about that uh -huh. and like that your main focus like at now as that person is kind of to be the rock a little bit and the drum, the drums are kind of, you know rhythmically helping you along and you know i don't know that, that was really fascinating well, that's an me. interesting conversation i mean yeah. i i think you know that pulse is shared between the bass player and the drum yeah that's you know and different people have different but it, it is sort of a almost a negotiation or a a, a, a conversation sure. about where's the quarter note you, you know, know how does it feel and all that and um i work with a lot of drummers and i'm blessed to work with a lot of great drummers and it's, it's, every drummer is very different, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the more I've played, the more aware I've become of that and how it influences what I do and what I can do. Yeah. You know, yeah, what's, sure. what's possible on any given gig. Yeah. Um, so with, so kind of more with improv here. So when, when you're writing, like what, what are, what's your, do you have like a goal with the song or, or like, do you, cause I know that like, so for example, a lot of times I'll listen to guys, like for me, when I wrote my two albums, I knew that there was a little bit of accessibility that I wanted, like with my vocals and with some of the, uh, with some of the chords. But then when it came to kind of the beats that I was using, I really liked five and seven and stuff. And then I also really didn't like the idea of a 340 song, you know, I, I liked kind of longer, you know, very similar to Fish or, you know, like uh, prog rock kind of stuff. And so I knew that I wanted like, I had a goal in mind, you know, I they all ended up kind of being like that. A lot of not too crazy of chord, you know, the chords itself weren't too nuts and the vocals were regular kind of pop vocals, but I knew that I liked like Dream Theater and Medeski Martin and Wood and Fish and that, that kind of stuff. And so, I kind of wanted to do a blend of, of making it something resembling accessible for people, but also giving kind of the musicians something that they would like to. And uh, do, you, do you have a, a, you know, a motivation there or a goal when you're writing or does it just like come out or, or do you do the, the beats first and the melody second or how, how do you deal with your writing? Well, it varies on different projects, but generally, most of the music I'm composing, I'm composing at the organ now, mm -hmm. and it generally is just an idea comes out that I'm interested in, you know, um, and if, 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 and a lot of times it'll happen when I first start playing in the morning, you know, when I first turn on the organ and I'm, I know I'm going to practice a certain song or whatever, but I'll just be playing around for a minute before I start whatever I'm going to work on that morning, and sometimes things just want to come out. Mm -hmm. And when they do, I try to honor it. Mm -hmm. You know, I try and, oh, that's an interesting idea. I like that. Um, and I'll develop it a little bit and make a quick recording of it, yeah. you know, on my phone. Or if I have time and I've gotten the idea developed far enough, I'll turn on Pro Tools mm -hmm. and make a quick uh, multi-track recording of it. 
but it's generally just something that gets my attention that I want to hear. At the, most of the better compositions I've done are things that have just come to me. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, I sit down at the organ and it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, I do sometimes, I'll, like I'll have a certain song, you know, that uh, I'm playing that I enjoy. Maybe it's a, a composition by somebody else. And I'll say, I like that kind of groove. I'm going to write a tune that has a similar groove. Right. You know, and I, sometimes I'll set out to do that. Sure. Where it's like, oh, you know. And I tend to write a lot of pretty complex things and lots of sections right. and, you know, mixed meter. I mean, and sometimes I'll just be like, I'm going to write, I like playing these two chord groove songs. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write a two chord groove song mm-hmm. and I'll set out to do yeah. that. So sometimes I'll have a goal like sure. that. I want to write a certain type of tune or I'll need a certain type of, you know, we need, I want another funk tune for that gig or I want an up tempo swing tune for that gig mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll set a goal like that. Sure. Um, but I think most of the best things, just, most of my best compositions just, just uh, flow yeah. through me. Um, like I'm not the one writing them. Right. Um, there is that thing of you get that initial inspiration and then you've got to craft it into a finished composition. Right. And, and that doesn't always uh, come easily. Sometimes it take, that's more the work. Yeah. And, and then for me, a lot of times it's raining it in because I'll start to just go all the, and I have to kind of narrow it back down so it doesn't, so it doesn't come unplayable or, un, you know, too hard to get other people to play or yeah, sure. for me to even be able to play yeah. it sometimes. Most, a lot of the stuff I compose, and this was happening maybe more 10 years ago, I would just write stuff at the edge of my ability to play, mm-hmm. you know? And so unless I was constantly shedding it, I couldn't play it. Right. And, and that's great for getting better. It's maybe not the best composition technique. A lot of my compositions are essentially exercises. Like I'm working on an aspect of my playing and, uh, I'll be practicing that and then kind of a, a tune will come out of it. Yeah. So I certainly have a chunk of tunes that are essentially just grew out of exercises. Mm-hmm. Like there's a tune I wrote, uh, called Yuma Green, it's just a bunch of two fives that were basically the keys that I felt like I wasn't as good in. Mm, you know, there's like three, three keys of two fives that were keys that I just, you know, wasn't as comfortable. A lot of it was the bass lines, just the bass lines weren't laying mm. well for me in those keys. And so... It, See, that's interesting because a lot of people I think would do the exact opposite. Oh no, I can't do this in G sharp. Screw that. G. Okay, here we go. You know, like, and they're not going to want to push them. I mean, that that's... Sounds like you're like trying to trying to get better. Well, as a, yourself, as a keyboard know. player, we're saddled with a historical interface. You know, the keyboard. This was not meant to be played in twelve keys. Mm. When it when it developed, they played in C. I mean, this. You know, mm. that's a C instrument. If you can play a major scale mm. by doing that, mm. that's a C instrument, and mm. it was meant to be played in the key of C. And fairly early on, they started playing in other keys. Some of the first keyboards. Some of the black notes would actually share functions. You'd have to turn a switch. Oh, this, weird. This would be, you know, maybe this one would, would, yeah. it would change which note it was because you're basically only using those for certain parts of the uh, composition or whatever. But but people played in the key of C or F, G, D, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until much later they started playing in all 12 keys. I mean, Bach was a big proponent of that with, mm. with the well-tempered tuning system and the well-tempered clavier. He's like, no, we can play in all 12 keys. It's cool. You know? Mm. But this interface is still not really that great for playing a lot of keys. If you're playing guitar or, you know, fretboard, once you learn a scale, that scale pattern's good in every key unless you run into the top of the, mm. you know, or the bottom. 
But piano's not, the piano keyboard's not like that. You know, all the keys look different and it's ugly. Um, so a lot of what I do with those when I'm working on those keys is you're trying to overcome that. You know, you're trying to overcome the limitations of this interface and be proficient in all those keys, even though some of the shapes are different. And so that's a lot of that is, and I think that's a lot of, for many people becoming a, an improvising musician or a jazz musician on keyboard is learning that, learning that our harmonic system, you know, the one major, two minor, three minor, four major, five dominant, six minor, seven half diminished major, that that's true in all keys, you know, and making that at every key is as fluid as the key of C. Sure, yeah. And so that's a lot of, of what, what I'm trying to do to uh, play in all those keys is you have to make it as fluid in every key. I, as I became an accordionist, I learned about chromatic Latin accordion. And if you see those guys from Northern Europe or Eastern Europe, you know, Russians, Finnish, they play these uh, uh, chromatic Latin accords where the interface is ideal. Every key is the same. You just move, you don't want to change keys, you just move your hand. Mm -hmm. And those guys shred on that because once they learn a pattern, it's yeah. good in every key. They don't have to learn it in yeah. 12 different patterns. Yeah. Um, so that is, I think, an interesting thing about this historical interface as an improvising musician. You really have to overcome those keys being different. And I think for some musicians, it's just inherently, they just naturally do it. It doesn't bother them at all. Right. You know, the super talented. That, you know, yeah, that's cool. They just immediately overcome it. For most humans, though, <laughs> it takes some work to overcome that. You know? Sure, yeah, yeah. So, so kind of switching gears a little bit. So with, with your band, one thing that I'm always fascinated by is all of the businessy side of, of music. And I heard, I mentioned this on our, on our last, uh, last show that I heard this guy talking about personality differences between people. And he was talking about this thing called the big five aspect scale, where you have like extroversion and orderliness and uh, openness to ideas and uh, agreeableness. And there's all these things. And so he was talking about different people, how a lot of times people are, uh, and so orderly is, you know, rules and boundaries and structure and whatever. And then you have openness, which is more openness to ideas where it's a lot of creativity and stuff. And I found with a lot of musicians that it's not rare, but you don't see it very much where someone is like ridiculously orderly and ridiculously open. It's uh, like super creative. It, it, you tend to have more of one or the other. And so with, with running a band, it seems like a lot of people have, a lot of guys are just not good at all this business stuff. You know, like making a website and making a flyer to put down at the bar and like talking to the club owner and like, and we've talked about this on the show a lot because I think it's really important. Um, and, uh, and some of the guys uh, really avoid that like the plague and they become kind of a studio-ish guy where they're, they're like, I do not want to run a band, screw that, you know, I just want people to call me and I want to show up and play and, and it, I would wonder if there's, you know, a tiny bit of brattiness with that as this is the stuff that they just don't want to do. So they avoid it. But also I think people are realizing that they're just not good at that. But then you have somebody like Alani McFadden, who's kind of, kind of sort of good at that and doing the organization and wants to talk to the club owner because it's his, you know, it's his name. And like, um, what do you, how, 
is that stuff like hard for you or did you have to learn how to get good at that of like booking and or do you like doing that stuff or can you talk about a little bit about the kind of the business side of your band and how that's going um well i enjoy the creative music side the most sure um i don't mind doing uh a lot of the other stuff Sorry. um but to me, being able to do some of the other stuff allows you to do the creative stuff. You know, being able to take care of the business, being able to have gigs lined up and being able to make recordings, you know, and sell recordings, mm -hmm. you know, uh, have a web presence. All that stuff enables the creative stuff. And, you know, as a creative artist, rarely is anybody else going to do as good a job as you'll do on your stuff as you will because you're motivated right i mean unless right. you've got a really good team yeah. that some people that who believe in you are motivated by money or whatever mm -hmm. else might motivate them you know i think a lot of artists are going to be their their best proponent for doing a lot of that stuff but it's it's maybe unpleasant it's not as, sure. as much fun i mean so it's sort of a, a means to an end mm -hmm. uh, to take care of business so you can have your band and do the band you want to do yeah. Um, you do kind of have to be able to take care of business and you do have to be able to book gigs uh, or, you know, find a way to have an outlet for your music. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did, you know, I was a professional musician for several years after college. I played in Ida McBeth's band right up. I got out of school and did that for several years and did some other gigs. And then I kind of got disenchanted with it and uh, went back to school. And, you know, went to law school and practiced law. I worked for a judge for three years, which I really enjoyed. <clears throat> and then practiced law for a few years. And one of the focuses of my practice was uh, helping musicians and, and music-related businesses. And I enjoyed that part of it in terms of, you know, somebody wants to do a CD project. They've got these investors. They need a contract. You know, mm -hmm. they need to form an LLC. Okay. And I enjoyed that part, and I really didn't have much of a business background, but I, with the legal background, I was able to, to pull enough of that together to do that. And I enjoyed that part. I didn't enjoy all the conflict that was involved. And yeah. I'd had, you know, at the time I was practicing law, uh, Napster had come into yeah, effect. Right. And, and Napster now, was a big deal at the time. Huge yeah. deal. People don't realize, I watched a Napster documentary a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah. that was a huge deal. I know Change. Lars was a big, you know. Uh, oh yeah, they were was, way Lars down. Lars was, was, was really not, not happy about that stuff. Right, well, and a lot of musicians and, and record labels weren't, and it was a very quick shift of how music was going to be delivered. Mm -hmm. And I worked for one in particular, but a couple of small uh, record labels, you know, Kansas City regional record labels based in Kansas City, and within a year, almost all of those had gone out of business. Mm. You know, that that sort of regional record it changed so much that the older ones, a lot of them, just went out of business. Mm. Um, and you just don't have. I mean, now there's just there's just a very few major labels, and the smaller labels tend to be, you know, very small, not making a lot of money. A lot of times they're just run by bands or a few bands that have banded together. You know, the record label thing is very different from sure. what it was then. Um, <clears throat> so when you were a lawyer, you you were probably getting a lot of drummers out of jail. No, I'm just kidding. Well, and <laughs> I, I didn't really practice that much after I worked for the judge. I, you know, and I and basically I just backslid into being, that's when I bought yeah. a Hammond organ. Mm -hmm. was when I worked on the Kansas Court of Appeals, I bought a Hammond organ and during that time. And I just went back to being a musician. But so I say all that 
and that's a long time ago. I mean, I'm practicing yeah. law for over a decade, but to say that, you know, I have done more on the business side than a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I still tend to put it off. Mm -hmm. I have to make myself do it. Like mm -hmm. we, we released a new record, OJT, new originals for the green lady. We released this fall. And you know, I was like, my my website is just woefully out of date, and like I've got to update it. Mm -hmm. And so you know, it didn't really take me that long, but it just, right. I have to make myself do it. Right. And I was motivated because we had a new record coming out. I had to you know get that up there, make it look you know like it's not from the nineties, you know. <laughs> and so I guess you know the long the the end of that is it really helps I think creatives taking care of the business end allows you to create. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, I kind of have to make myself do it. Yeah. And the, so you're, you're talking about a mentality of it though, is that you, because that's what I think is missing with a lot of guys is they just don't, they, they, they don't like seeing it as the means to the end. Like you said, is, is this is part of it. And I, I always use the analogy of like a car where like, so you have this band or sorry, you have the car and if you don't have the steering wheel, you're done. You know, if it has no tires, you're done. If you have no seats, you can't sit, you know, and like every part seems so critical. And this is one of those big parts that, I mean, all of us have kind of been in bands that had all but these two pieces and it was, it kind of didn't end up going anywhere. Like the, the music was there. The guys were really good players. It maybe was, uh, the, everybody was sort of getting gigs, but the guys hated each other or something, you know what I mean? Or, or the guys all liked each other, but you weren't really good players or the, all the musical stuff was great, but nobody booked any gigs or nobody advertised. I've been in that yeah. <laughs> so that, that always cracks me up. And that, and so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make a, make a framework for what, because I'm always fascinated by all those guys that are like all of us that are sitting in these 300, $300 gigs for accidentally forever, <laughs> you know, and they're just, you know, they're going from one bar to bar and you play five times here. Okay. Sorry. And then you go to another bar around Kansas city, around a town. And those guys that are up in those 800, $1,500 gigs in that, in that type of a band that's really pushing, then you get up to that, you know, next $3,500, you know, festival kind of, you know, and that, and I'm trying to figure out what all these guys are doing of why they're not up, you know, why their band has never gotten up there, you know, and that, and I, I wonder if a lot of it is the, the businessy stuff is that because how many good players are there here? It can't be that. There's a thousand in this right. town. Right, that's one element. I mean? It's one element, but it's not the only yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, you can't be trash. I mean, you can't, this started one day ago, you know, I mean, it, to, to get a good band, it's, it's hard, you know, I mean, you gotta have some talent there, but I wonder if it's all the extra businessy stuff is what's holding a lot of people back, I don't, I don't know. Well, in terms of elevating your career, you know, the career of any band or musician, I think one important element is being unique. You know, how do you get more money is you're not, you know, uh, just a, a country band or just a jam band or just a jazz yeah. band. You're a unique jazz band. And, yeah. and, and the example from my life is the doodads. We did rock and roll for kids. Um, and there were lots of kids bands, but there was only one band that played rock and roll for kids the way we did the doodads. So we could charge 
a lot more and we could charge whatever we wanted because if you wanted the doodads you had to right. hire us yeah you that's know? probably another thing like you just said is, is something and shtick is a bad word i don't like well, that but word the, but i think just being unique yeah being unique and of course in demand yeah. the combination of in demand and unique allows you to raise your price um but a lot of the bands you're talking about you know you're talking about doing bar gigs mm -hmm. You're all essentially fungible units. You're replaceable. You know, another, well, there are, those guys are like a, a rock band, a classic rock band. Well, here's another classic rock band, mm -hmm. right? And one might be better than the other. You know, they might have a better song list or whatever. Yeah, the but, same thing, yeah. but to so many people, they're replaceable. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but if it's a, a classic rock band that has a show, yeah. You know, that has, oh, they do, oh, they do a Zeppelin set and then they do a, what's it, you know, then you've become more unique, you know, mm -hmm. and you've elevated what you do. Yeah. Of course, it's being unique doing original music is great. And yeah. you're, you're, of course, very unique because it's your own compositions. But then there's that aspect of getting over with an audience who's never heard that music before. Mm -hmm. And so then there's a whole nother set of challenges of getting your music out there. You know, making your music accessible enough, right. you know, that people will listen to it. I always use the kiss analogy, you know, that, I mean, they, you know, they've got this fire and the tongue yeah. and the costume. It's a show. And they, have, they have this huge it's entertaining. Thing. Their, their music, I, you know, this is my opinion. I don't, you know, I think you take away all that stuff and you got kind of some average rock. That's my opinion. Right. But, but when you go to the, the show, show, everybody that comes there goes, dude, that was top five best shows I've ever seen, you know, and so visually and just the energy and stuff. And so like, I... I wonder, yeah. So, so it sounds like that's a, that's probably a big component of it—the uniqueness and and what your angle is, I guess, huh? Yeah, I think yeah. so. And and you know, in your more fundamental question earlier was was just you know the business end, yeah. taking care of that. Um, and and sometimes it's one member of the band. Or what I was thinking about when you when you were talking about that earlier was. You know, there's those guys who maybe aren't the best musicians in the band, but that's the guy that goes out and gets the gig, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and we all know that band leader, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and Hey, I hope all my musicians in my band are better players than me. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to keep trying to be better, but mm -hmm. you know, if you're booking the gig, hopefully you can get guys who are really, you know, right. that are better than you or, or at least elevate, you know, hopefully elevate your level of playing. Right. Yeah. That, that's, yeah, I think, I think you're right. And, and that's really cool. I mean, that's kind of back to the roles of the band too. Sometimes yeah, that me and my buddy, I, I talk about him a lot that I play with, but he's, you know, he's really good on stage. He's great with the audience about the best talk. He's better at Lonnie's pretty good at talking. This guy like dwarfs Lonnie. He's so good at it's. He's got to really, be good then. Yeah. I'll tell you, Lonnie, he, that yeah. audience loves Lonnie before he plays a note. Yeah. He, yeah. he talks for, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, 30 seconds or a minute before mm -hmm. the show starts. Right. They're already pulling for him. He hasn't even played a note yet and they already love him. Yeah. You know, and so that's a great thing. Yeah. And, and so, but he's also hard to pin down a little bit too because he's got this openness thing really hard he's lateral all over his ideas are just constant all day nonsense because he's a comedian basically you know so he's just got nonsense silliness going on in his head all day but as you can tell i'm i'm a lot more serious than he probably is and mm -hmm. but that's i think why we kind of work sure. all right together because right. i i am thinking about probably too much again all about all this kind of stuff and and even on stage I can let him think of the songs, talk to the audience, and but I'm because I don't have to play the whole time. I can kind of turn around to the band and do all the cueing. Basically, I'm like the on stage conductor because uh -huh. I've conducted before and stuff, and I'm 
because I'm trying to think three moves ahead, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at cueing sure. and stuff. You know the endings coming in, you know, okay. to get people's eyes. We're going to okay, stop. Okay, second verse, here's the chorus, wow. all right, bridge, now we have a solo, I got to turn to him for the second, so, you know, I'm just... Right. And so that, but with the role of the band, I think that's what a lot of guys are looking for because they don't want to go do all that business stuff. And those those guys, like Alani, are gold out here, you know, because everybody's so bad at it, you know. And, and we're all looking for those people, you know, probably to avoid a little bit of work there <laughs> so we don't have to go advertise. But, um, but yeah, I always thought that that was really important. And, and one of the things that, especially young college kids also, we don't get a whole lot of that at college. They teach us how to play music beautifully. And we don't ever get taught how to talk to a club owner and like tell jokes to an audience in the middle of songs. And like, so I think a lot of people miss that, you know? Well, and it's hard to teach. And most people who are teaching in college don't have much experience with that. Or, you know, it's a problem. There's some yeah. exceptions. And, and, you know, I know there are some people, I know Stan Kessler has done some business of music classes where, you know, you've got somebody who's got real world experience who's going to talk to Bobby. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Bobby yeah, Watson. Yeah, he's yeah. got real world experience. Yeah. You know, he can talk to people about that stuff. Roger's going to have that. Rod yeah. Fleeman. Yeah, yeah we're lucky. So, yeah, we're lucky yeah. here. Like, you, you know, those, all those people you mentioned are at UMKC and Jim Merrill or Casey, mm-hmm. you know, Kansas Kansas Community College. He played gigs for years, you know. Um, and so that is good, and I think that real world experience is helpful. But in the end, you got to go out and do it. Sure. You, the, yeah. the, you know, to turn the final trick yourself. Yeah. Right? yeah. You got to go out and do it. Um, but I think that is good for creative people to have control of their own career and and realize that you know schedule some time to do that stuff that that you don't like to do. Right. I have to I have to write it down on a schedule. I'm gonna do this now. Because then after I do it I feel so much better. And it wasn't really that big a deal. It's just not really in my wheelhouse. It's yeah. not my most comfortable thing. Yeah. But if it allows you to create more stuff of what you you know, to, to create more space for doing what you really wanna do, um, it's important. You know, there's the other perspective of just get really good at what you do and the world will come to you. Yeah. And that works for some people. Right. You know, but that doesn't work for everybody, yeah. in my experience. Definitely the, 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 um, the, co- the studio kind of guys, you know, that's what, that's what they want to do. They want to get to know a ton of people, have their craft, and then they're just, you know, waiting by the phone, <laughs> like, the rest of their life, you know, and people are calling them. I know, like, maybe a Dominique Sanders would have been like that, you know, where he get, gets to know a lot of people, and then he just starts getting calls, and he... After, after a while, you don't have to go hunt for gigs. You just go to jams and meet a bunch of people and then start getting calls, which is nice. I mean, it's a nice place to be I, if I, you're not going to, you know, if you're not going to run your band, if you're just going to get calls. But I'm a big believer in the importance of setting an intention. If, if I want to accomplish something, you know, think about exactly what it is and set that intention. You know, what is it you want to accomplish? And you can break it down to a, a general thing. I want to compose more music. You can also have a very, I want to compose more music for, for this record. I want to compose a mm-hmm. musical, yeah. you know, and, and then write down some very specific goals and work towards them. But that, that setting of an intention unleashes all sorts of power in the, in the way I believe the universe works, you know, in just when you set an intention, the universe starts to work to create it, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so I think those things you're talking about, a lot of those come down to, creative people set an intention for what you want to do and take steps towards doing it but then the universe if it's if you stay with that intention 
the universe will work to accomplish it and mm -hmm. things will come in to help you know you'll meet people you've never met before you know mm -hmm. doors will open where no doors were before and those things will will come to pass that's interesting that you said intention instead of goal I, I kind of like that because there there's when you when you're talking about setting a intention there's also ability to have a fork off of that oh, right? and yeah, yeah. Like, this or something yeah. better is the right way, is the way people I heard say. a guy talk about that about setting setting a plan or whatever and that's the plan but you, you know when when you have to deviate you always have your like backup plan or whatever you know and that, that's just interesting that you said that word well, intention well and I, and I think so not often I'll set an intention to do a certain thing but if that, if the specific goal doesn't happen, but the more general one does in a slightly right. different way, well, I'm just as happy. Yeah, and right. and maybe it turns out actually being better because I when I first set the so I think it's good to think of them generally and specifically, and then be happy if the general one comes. Yeah. You know, is more what writing I'm, an album is an intention, but what what is in the album, who right. plays on the album, where that's that all stuff is still up for grabs. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we're probably probably wrapping up here. Uh, do you do you have a a gig that was really crazy that you played or really great or um you know there have been there's 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 i'll start with this one and maybe there'll be another one but this this may be it so i played in this band called cosmopolitics a lawrence jam band matt gators guitar player uh songwriter uh luke stone's drummer andy croker's bass player and i played keyboards at varying times in the band and we would play at the walker russo music festival back when it was in Lawrence. and uh we had played there i think a couple of years in a row and uh we had a pretty good spot about 1 a.m in one of the campground stages so after the main stage had closed we were in the campground stage well this year uh the uh park rangers were shutting the thing down because mm. of time constraints mm. and so we had this meeting with people running the festival and they're like yeah we it, we actually signed to say that there wouldn't be any campground music after midnight and mm. so you can't do your show and of course we were crushed because that was our we were all camping but that was our whole reason for being out there right. was to do the show and i think this was maybe friday thursday or friday night and so it was we would just become aware of it. i think they had just become aware of it yeah and so couldn't do our show and we're bummed out and it's i think it was a 1 a.m show so it's getting late pretty quick but we look we're like we want to play and we look around and there's those big uh generators that run the lights mm -hmm. the campground lights and I, i'm just like there's an outlet there you know because people are like we can find a generator we can plug in and i'm just like we don't even need to find a generator there's one right there mm -hmm. we just need an extension cord and uh I couldn't use the Hammond organ because I couldn't plug that into a generator because mm -hmm. the pitch will move. Yeah. Let, you know, uh, though. Oh, though. Actually, that. Or I think I did play organ because I have one that converts it, so you can do it. Yeah. But anyway, so we set up in the campground and played mm -hmm. from like the sun was coming up. We played like from two to five. Wow. And I think that's probably one of the most rock and roll moments of my life, just because it was kind of a renegade show. Right. And it wasn't because we didn't have a PA. It wasn't so loud we were going to attract the attention of the park police. Right. At least we didn't. Um, but we got to do our show, and it was it was uh, it was really great. The show ended when a bunch of nudists showed up, <laughs> and the sun was coming up, and there was all these naked people, and it's like, okay, we're done. <laughs> so that, that that was uh, that probably the most rock and roll. Yeah, but it was moment. kind of like against them too, because they're talking about that you can't play after midnight. So you were like, yeah, screw you, you know. Though I'm sure they knew we were playing. Sure, they, yeah. You know, they, they, 
people figured it out, but we weren't on a stage and there wasn't a big PA, so I don't think it created a problem, but it was kind of a renegade show. That's fun. Uh, but I think, and, and, and it was just so great to get to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, that's, a, at a big festival like that. Yeah, right. and, and just we were we were all waiting for that show. That was our whole reason for camping sure. that weekend. To not play the show was would have been uh, you know epic failure. Sure. So that that was that was a pretty cool fun. Yeah, that's fun, man. Um, well, yeah, I don't know what else I got for you, but uh, that's probably enough. That's probably enough. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, definitely uh, keep up what you're doing at uh, Green Lady and anywhere else you get yeah. to play. Yeah, I really a- enjoy your enjoy your all the guys that you bring up and and definitely your arrangements and everything you're doing. Everything you're doing with your band is yeah, is really great, man. Uh, so, uh, Ken Laverne. Thanks for coming. No, Foster. Thanks so much. Thanks, yeah. Rob. Yeah, no problem. But uh, we'll be back next time with some more people talking about stuff. All right. See you guys later.